Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, Senior Technology Editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a show where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. It could be anything, like what's the latest with Uber? Uh, Should I buy Amazon's new kitchen tablet, the Echo Show? Which everyone is reviewing this week. No idea. What the heck is blockchain? What the heck? What tech could Kara Swisher not live without while she was away a couple weeks ago? You know what? I didn't live without any of it. So I don't know why you would assume I would. I wasn't like on an island in the middle of the Pacific or something like that. I thought you were away. I was, but I was. there was plenty of Wi-Fi everywhere I went. So Maybe you just felt that way to me because you were gone, Kara. Yes. No, I was, on, I was, so on, far away. I was online. In fact, I was writing a lot last week because of all the Uber stuff. So I didn't, it wasn't much of a vacation. Um, but anyway, send us your questions. We do read them all. Find us on uh, on the Twitter or tweet them to us to at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag too embarrassed. And we also have an email address. It's tooembarrassed at recode.net. And a friendly reminder, embarrassed has two R's and two S's. Yeah. All right. So uh, I am in SF and Lauren is in New York City. That's um, right. And, and what are you doing there? What are you in New York City for? I'm in New York City for the Loeb Awards. Oh, right. Not because I'm receiving a Loeb Award, no. but because one can dream, but because Walt Mossberg is uh, the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement yes. Award, yes. Uh, which he greatly deserves. And, um, and so a few of us from the company were invited to attend along with him. And um, I'm really excited to be here. A lot of drinking, a lot of carousing. Well, you know, I don't know about that. You know, it's it's a vente latte. It is a bunch of journalists getting together, but I can't imagine there would be any drinking. (laughs) Giant lattes, maybe a financial journalist. Venti grande, venti, something like that. Um, I'm all about about the green tea. That means that you can can stay up just as late and remember everything that everyone told you. I am a Loeb judge. I don't know if you know that, but I did not, was not involved in this, although I have suggested, I have talked to Walt quite a bit around every, he should get every award as far as I'm concerned. And uh, years ago, I actually won a Loeb Award. If you, I don't know if you know that, and I didn't think I, I was going to win. So I did was not this have for Yahoo coverage. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I didn't it was know I, I was going to win, and so I was like mad because I wasn't winning. And then they said my name, <laughs> and I didn't have a speech, and I was like, I didn't think I was going to win. Thank you, Yahoo, for being so fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was nice. Yeah, that was my speech. <laughs> I was all mad at the whole dinner because I thought I deserved to win and didn't win, and then I won. So it was terrible. I'm, I'm a bad winner. I'm a sore winner is what I well, am. Maybe you should uh, cover Oath now Oath. and uh, try to reprise your award. I don't know. I'm, I'm on the yeah. Uber thing, the Uber thing and the sexual harassing venture capitalist beat right now. So yeah. that's what I do. Yeah. Stick with it. <laughs> try There'll to catch all the Mr. News. Tickles of tech, as I like the to say. <laughs> Oh, man. I know, right? Whatever. Well, but oh, someone's laughing in the background. This is not a Mr. Tickle. We are going to talk about something serious, though, right now. We're talking about finance, correct? Finance. Yes. Today on Too Embarrassed to Ask, we are delighted to be talking to Jeremy Allaire. He's joining us from a studio in Boston. Jeremy is the CEO of Circle, which is not to be confused with not the Circle, the no. dystopian Google-like company that was in the Dave Eggers book that everyone in tech red, I'm pretty yeah. sure, mm-hmm. um, and is now turned into a movie, which I've not Nobody seen. Saw. But, uh, but <laughs> Circle is a social payments company that lets people send and receive money from their phones. Now, previously, the company was known for letting users trade the digital currency Bitcoin, but it has since moved away from that and has now started its own open source initiative called Spark. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank it's you like for to be coming. here. And Jeremy used to be a video maven. He used to run a, a company called Brightco. We used it the early versions of all things D, but he doesn't want to talk about that in any way. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to talk about online video. No, no, no. But that's not much right. more interested to talk about 
blockchain tech. Blockchain, which has evolved quite a bit. We, you and I talked about yeah. it right when you started the company. I think we wrote the initial story when you, you launched. Um, yeah, quite and, and we want to talk specifically about blockchain. And um, you did also join us not long ago at the, our annual code conference where you helped lead a breakfast uh, discussion about blockchain, which is then in its early stages. So you have a lot of blockchain background. Indeed. Yeah, and I have to say, I uh, I pitched in for Jason Del Rey, who was originally going to host that breakfast and ended up being sick, and I and I was there, and I was shocked by how many people showed up to this breakfast. I mean, it was really standing room only in the room, um, and people at Code Conference, and granted, it's very tech heavy crowd at Code Conference, but people really interested in it. And so some of our listeners may know exactly what this is already and have more complex questions about it. But I think we should start from the beginning for those who don't know. So Jeremy, what is blockchain? Yeah. So, I mean, the term blockchain really came out of uh, Bitcoin specifically, and it refers to essentially the, the record keeping mechanism that Bitcoin uses to record transactions. And I think... Um, you know, the really powerful thing about it is it's a shared record keeping system um, that is open and transparent. Anyone can see it, audit it, verify transactions on it. It's not stored by any single company. When we think of record keeping systems, whether they're the polling system for votes or your own corporate budgets, treasury systems to uh, say the ledgers that keep track of what money you have or what money you owe, say at a bank. Those are all centralized record-keeping systems. And Bitcoin was a major breakthrough for a lot of reasons. But, you know, this blockchain concept, which was, hey, there's this chain of transactions, a history of transactions, and it's replicated continuously all around the world onto thousands of computers. And it's a record-keeping system that is not hackable. It's not forgeable. It's immutable. And so it has some permanence. Yet at the same time, it's not centralized, so it's not subject to, say, the tampering risk or fraud risk or, or counterparty risk because we're dealing with money often when you're dealing with blockchain technology that exists with that. And so that's, a, that's an invention. How do you have you know, data that is essentially you know, replicable, but at the same time, you can prove that you own a specific record in that database? So fundamentally, a record-keeping system, and it was you know, created as a way to keep track of transactions that represent Bitcoin, but now the concept has evolved a lot as well, uh, and it's being applied in a lot of different ways, and we can, we can get into that. Um, so at a high level, that's, that's at least, I think, a good way to think about it. Who created blockchain? Yeah, so um, the you know, Bitcoin itself, um, no one knows who created Bitcoin. They're always um, fi- trying to know, find the person, right? Always trying to find the person or persons. Yeah, I don't really care. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto is the pseudonym you know, clearly someone with, you know, some computer science skill, although not an expert computer scientist, some very much a passion around cryptography and a lot of depth in cryptography because a a major part of how all these systems work is using cryptography as a way to prove you possess, for example, an address on on this ledger or or to prove that... um, you as a computer verifying transactions have in fact verified a transaction. So he was, you know, he or she or they were experts in uh, cryptography and to some degree also economic theorists um, because, you know, in Bitcoin's case, but in in many of the coins uh, and different digital currency models that have emerged, 
there's an economic philosophy that's built into it as well. And so there's a mix of skills that went into that person, persons who created the concept. And now that concept has been kind of forked, if you will, and lots of different projects are implementing it. So let's talk a little bit about the cryptography part of it, because I think that's what's interesting. Because you went from cryptocurrency to digital currency. So talk a little bit more, because I think when people think blockchain, Bitcoin, they get super confused um, Mm -hmm. about what the use is. And also the difference between a public blockchain and a private one. Can you sort of walk us through it, like the idiot's version of this? Yeah. You know, know, I, I like to step back a little bit from the details and and just think about you know what are the problems that we're trying to solve yeah, here exactly. and you know what what got me really excited about this you know 5 years ago um, when i first started reading about yeah bitcoin but you know i think the idea that you know there's a there's a, a few missing layers to the internet you know we we created all these different protocols and then we layered more protocols on top of them you know we had tcpip and then we built mm-hmm. things like smtp for email and we built http for sharing information and data and they're really um simple protocols we all know the history but they were open and anyone could use them and anyone could put them on a computer and then you know allow email to flow or allow information and data to flow between computers you know with things like http and the fact that you had these open distributed networks and you could connect any computer with these software protocols to them was really powerful and transformative as we have all seen. When you look at you know, an invention like Bitcoin and blockchain technology more broadly, you know, what we saw was, you know what, that's now, that's now arriving for, for value. Um, it's now arriving for how we keep track of value. And when you peel back the onion on money, what you really actually have at the end of the day are just a bunch of record-keeping systems. Money is nothing more than record-keeping yeah. systems. There is no money. Mm-hmm. There's just someone who keeps track of who owes whom what. Right. And that's it. And so if we have a, an open global record-keeping system that is um, you know, uh, very, very secure, it's distributed and decentralized in the same way the web is distributed and decentralized, you know, who runs the web? Well, no one runs the web. It's a it's an open network with protocols that define it. And so if you have something like that for record keeping, that's a huge invention and you can build all kinds of things on top of it. And the first use case and one of the first use cases was, well, how do you move, you know, how do you move value around the planet um, in the same way we can move other things around the planet? You know, that was the fundamental breakthrough. Now, the the underlying technology, this immutable ledger and, you know, it's immutable because there's an incentive system behind it, which is creates an economic value on the security of the ledger. And so the, the economic value is, in a sense, the market cap of the, of the ledger itself. And the incentive to, to do that is that there's a, a finite number of slots on the ledger. And if you control a slot, that has economic value. You know, that ledger um, can be used for a lot of different things. So what people have started to see is, well, yes, the, the slots on this ledger keep track of the units of, of this thing called a Bitcoin, but you can stick things in there. You can um, essentially record something else, a, a key to something else in there, and it becomes an almost immutable record of something. So like an example would be, how do I prove that I own a house. Well, I have this piece of paper, it's called a title, and that's a social construct. 
And that title is something that, you know, a record keeping agent keeps. And we sort of say, okay, the city clerk is the record keeping agent for the house, for a title on a house. And there's property law and courts that enforce that. But fundamentally, there's a record keeping system, there's serial numbers, and we keep track of it. And how do I prove that I own that? Well, I, I can go to the city hall and I can produce my government issued ID and they can give me a copy of it. Or I can bring a piece of mail that proves I live at the address. And so there's all these proofs that go on of identity, of records, and they're quite non-digital. Um, so the blockchain innovation really allows us to take everything where there's record keeping, everywhere, everything where there's trust around record keeping, and it allows us to make that digital, immutable, permanent, global, and So anybody can check from anywhere. So in, in essence, yeah. you, you use Bitcoin as a way to get in it. Bitcoin was a system that was used on it. So so you can like these, these blockchain services, are you competing with banks or governments or what, what's the, well, so uh, who are you competing with? There's lots of different, you know, so Circle specifically, you know, we are trying to create a new global consumer finance company and, you know, the, the thesis when we started this really four years ago was, well, if there are these open networks and protocols for how we store and transmit value, if, if that exists, then the whole kind of experience of how we pay each other as people, just person-to-person payments, will get recreated around that. And the same way we can send and receive an email with anyone anywhere for free, or we can share a photo with anyone instantly for free, like we'll be able to do, money will become these, these digital tokens, and we'll be able to do that with money. And it will just be a free service on the internet just like all these other things, messaging services, content services, search, all these other things. And that's itself really disruptive because you, you take networks that are very centralized and proprietary and you kind of turn those in over to the open internet and you see a kind of commoditization happen where storing and moving money is the same as storing and moving information and data, which is effectively free. So that the first piece was you know how do you go about doing that but do it in a way where it works more like the way the internet works for consumers today which is you know things like messaging apps mm-hmm. social media the, the user interface of money in a sense you know it used to be paper tokens and then paper tokens with an autograph on it and then plastic tokens but fundamentally the user interface of money for me paying you would just become software and it would just be built on the open internet. And it would actually, the user experience itself would be message oriented. It would be social media oriented. That's how people would express sharing value with each other because that's the way consumer behavior was going. So we saw that as the opportunity initially, which is how do we help do that, but do it not just in a closed way. Like there are services from companies like PayPal that, you know, allow you to make a social payment. Yeah. Yeah. So they allow you to make a social payment but it's all built on a closed centralized system. You know, why can't it be like the internet? Why can't I use Circle to pay someone who uses Alipay, to pay someone who uses Paytm in India, to pay someone who uses Venmo? Why can't it just work the same way email works and the web works? And it can. And blockchain tech makes that possible. So um, our belief is that that's, we're in the process of that happening. And there's good evidence. And what that means is that the retail, if you look at consumer banking as the kind of the, the, let's say the market that we're competing in long-term, the, the payment account 
which is, you know, we think of as our checking account or whatever, but the payment account, essentially the, the tool I use day to day to pay people and family and friends and others and ultimately businesses too, but just focus on people for a minute, that just becomes more of a free service on the internet and there's no profit margin and all the revenue associated with, with it just completely goes away. And ultimately that means that money has to be made in other places. And we've just started talking about this because we're now growing a lot and um, we're growing quite fast in Europe and we're growing nicely in the U.S. and the category is becoming a much more important category. Companies like Apple are, are getting into it with, a, with features in iMessage. Big banks are trying to catch up and do their own little network that works just in the U.S. and just with U.S. dollars. But the big idea of, hey, I can pay anyone anywhere with whatever digital wallet they have and it just flows around the Internet – that's that's sort of on the horizon, and that's how we built everything we okay. do. But ultimately, we, we want to make money by offering people credit, so lending, and we want to make and money. And so everyone will have a piece of this world, correct? Yeah. Like I mean, this of, isn't a zero-sum game, could, right? Could, like, the web is not a zero-sum game. Yeah, could it right? be that used was the for whole point. other things besides financials? You're talking about, totally. you know, currency is such a weird thing to just even think about. I pulled out yeah. a dollar today, and I hadn't seen one yeah. in so long. I was like, oh, look, it's a dollar. Right. And I just, right, I was like, right. why do I have this dumb dollar kind of thing? And it was totally. kind of, it was getting yeah. on a bus and for posterity. Um, I know, but it yeah, was I mean, weird. this gets yeah. to the other use cases of blockchain, which is, you know, so you can represent that, you know, money at its core is this first, this record keeping, right. a social record keeping system. It's, there's a geofence around it typically. Hopefully that goes away eventually, just like, you know, HTTP made kind of information distribution go that way, or there were international postal unions that connected countries' postal systems, and, like, we don't really think about that much, as, at least as much anymore. Hopefully that that's sort of what happens with underlying currency. But then on top of currency, you have other financial products that are built. So you have things like debt products and equity products and commodity products and blah, 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 things that are denominated and packaged, and there are contracts around those. And so the next big wave you know, when you hear about the banking industry or the finance industry getting all hot and bothered about blockchain tech, it's, oh, hey, we could we could represent all these complicated financial products that we have in this, and it, it would make it easier for us to, you know, move them around and re- record keep them and audit them and so on. It's not that exciting. But I think that it gets, it gets into a lot of other areas. When you think about trust and you think about record keeping, it, it covers huge dimensions. So, Digital identity is another missing layer of the internet. There is no open mechanism for us to control our identity and for trusted third parties to add fragments or attributes to our identity and for us to then carry that around the world and interact and authenticate with it. The closest thing we have is our Facebook ID and Facebook Connect or our Google ID and, and, and Google's you know, open ID connection. But that's not a truly open global model. And so identity is one that can be recreated with this. And then it gets into all these other things like voting. Record Voting is just a record-keeping system of choices. And it would be great if we had tamper-proof systems. And obviously, recent events make that feel more important. Tamper-proof systems of voting and governance. We have the you know mechanisms to essentially assert things about ourselves. How do I prove I have a diploma? You know, what's the mechanism I can do that mm-hmm. ownership of things? And people get really excited as well about, you know, the sort of convergence of blockchain technology and the Internet of Things. Everything has an identity. Every device has an identity and you can kind of track it all. And so it gets Orwellian. So you're kind of what you're case. kind of describing is like this fed, this idea of a federated 
identity that people have talked about Global in a lot identity. of different ways, yeah. especially in recent years if, as we've started to like, for example, our phone as our wallet, right? And our phone mm-hmm. being like everything, having everything about us. But it seems as though because right. everything is centralized and closed networks and closed it apps is. and walled gardens, it's hard to actually have it that is. kind of unified identity. Like, And there's it, those single points of failure, right? Mm-hmm. And and someone can be hacked. And there's also single points of trust. You got to, you know, you're, you're, where do you put the trust? The beauty of, of a public blockchain is you don't have to trust anyone, so to speak. The records are everywhere at the same time. And you prove things just using cryptography. So you prove that you control, say, your own identity record by having possession of a private key, which is in public key cryptography, you know, the thing that you can use to sign a message that proves you control it. And there are even... You know, there's this idea of a brain wallet, if you haven't heard of it, it's pretty powerful, which is a way to prove that you have a key by essentially representing that key in a, uh, in a, in a phrase, a passphrase. And so as long as you remember that passphrase, there's no, there, there doesn't have to be a digital artifact anywhere that you are trusting someone with other than the phrase in your head. But, so, it, but is this, I mean, you mentioned earlier the word unhackable, that blockchain mm-hmm. is unhackable. How is it unhackable? Well, so speaking the, as speaking yeah. in layman's terms, like so, how is I mean, it that something that exists sure. on a network is something sure. that would not be hacked? Well, so you have these records, and these records of the transactions are crypto- cryptographically recorded. In order to change the records, um, you have to control the entire network, and it's a distributed and decentralized network. In order to control the entire network, what that essentially means is you have to um, take over greater than 50% of the what's called the hashing power, which is you need to have greater than 50% of the kind of computing power that is applied to secure the network. So in, in, you know, in the case of Bitcoin, I don't have the, the recent numbers. Years ago, the numbers were insanely impressive, but it's a gigantic amount of computation that would be needed. The only really way would be sort of a breakthrough in cryptography, like quantum cryptography. And for someone to be able to deploy quantum cryptography secretly so that n- people who, who operate on the network were unable to detect it even emerging and, and on there. So there, there are sort of sci-fi scenarios or, and there are scenarios that you can imagine where there's an amount of computing power that is just orders of magnitude greater than the computing power that we imagine even possible today that could be applied to attempt to reverse just the most recent set of block of transactions, right? Let, you know, think about something that happened three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, or even six months ago that's recorded in the ledger to kind of reverse all of that. It's technically possible with a scale of of computing power, but economically not feasible. And, you know, theoretically, it would seem it would require Which is a what giant everyone, effort by a major state actor. Which is what everyone's um, looking for. Not that they wouldn't do that, by the way, Jeremy. So, the, you know, people talk about bug bounties, like, mm-hmm. hey, there's a bug bounty. You know, you can try and yeah. hack, you know, the Facebook login. And if you find a, a bug, you get a bounty or whatever. The world's biggest bug bounty is out there right now. And it's got a $100 billion market cap. There's a hundred billion dollars of value sitting out there, and you can you can try. 
uh, to, you know, take control of, say, the Bitcoin network. And, but it, it's, it is, it is um, mathematically almost impossible. So Bitcoin really isn't the point anymore, right? You start off with so many Bitcoin companies, but that's not really the point. It's a larger idea. And again, yeah. So you, you know, you have there are many there are many evolutions that are happening right now, and it's really exciting from that perspective. When we got started four years ago, we saw what Bitcoin was doing and said, okay, it's now possible. This idea of kind of these open networks for value exchange and 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 doing it in a in a way which feels very internet. We also felt like, hey, there's there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of missing pieces. It would be great if you could do a lot more with this than just so it's bigger. It's the, bigger. the single use of, of Bitcoin. Right. Um, and a lot of other people felt very similarly. And it really came from, you know, sort of um, there were camps that said, hey, we, we really like this, but it's not it's actually not anonymous enough. So there are people who created right. even more private and secure. But it's just versions. one small piece of it. That was my point. Okay, in a minute, we're going to take some questions about blockchain from our readers and listeners, and Jeremy's going to answer them. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Lauren? I feel like there should be a special version of this to like that's like a cryptocurrency. Crypto. Like instead of ka-ching, about, it's like ka-ching, crypto-ching. Crypto-ching. Okay, ka-ching. All right, here we go. To build the kinds of things developers want to build today, they need better tools. That's why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Aurora. It's a relational database engine that's compatible with MySQL and PostgreSQL, and it provides up to five times the performance of the standard MySQL on the same hardware at a tenth of the cost. Amazon Aurora from AWS can scale up to millions of transactions per minute. It automatically grows your storage to 64 terabytes. That's a lot of terabytes. And it replicates data to three different availability zones. You don't have to manage a thing. There are no upfront charges, no commitments. You only pay for what you use. Check it out at aurora.aws. Okay, we're back with Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of Circle, talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin, blockchain. And now we're going to take some (laughs) questions from our readers and listeners. Lauren, do you want to read the first question? I would love to. The first question is from Alexandra Gerton. Uh, at Gert and Alex on a Twitter. What problems are cryptocurrencies trying to solve? Seems like PayPal, Apple Pay, Square, et cetera, address everything. Hashtag too embarrassed. Yeah, sure. You know, I think we're, cryptocurrencies, obviously, they solve a lot of different problems, as we talked about a little bit before, that have to do with record keeping and all of this. But specifically within the realm of, of payments, the payments world today is a lot like where we were 20 years ago with how communications worked on the internet uh, or online services. You know, you could, you could get to content online. Um, you could dial up to a service like AOL and there was all this content on there and um, that felt like a lot of information to people. Like there's more information than I'll ever need here and it felt like I could communicate with someone through an email if they had an AOL account and so on. And the world of money is sort of similar. We have all of these closed networks. So we have, you know, if you happen to have PayPal, then you can use PayPal. There happens to be a fee on it. Um, It's a 3% uh, fee to move value around with that. If you are in another country, it might be a completely different system. And it might be administered by, say, a government agency or by a consortium of banks. Um, I think what cryptocurrencies promise ultimately is, is is that there's just a way to store and move money around that is more similar to how we store and move information around. And, you know, I I think it was hard for people to imagine, you know, free instant global communications 20 years ago. 
And people thought, oh, I, I don't really send international letters very often. I, it's fine. I can, if I need to send a letter to someone internationally, you know, I can do that. Or I don't make a lot of international phone calls or, or even long distance phone calls. Um, I kind of have, you know, a way to do that. Or, you know, if I really need to get someone a piece of information fast, there's this amazing thing called a fax and that's fine. It's good enough. I think people, there's sort of latent aspirations. People don't realize once they have something that's a completely frictionless, open, global thing, how how broadly the utility of that increases. And so if you measured the volume, say, of human-to-human text communication that exists today versus 20, 25 years ago, I mean, it's just off the charts, the amount of global human communication that happens. So if we reduce all the friction and all the cost in exchanging value, what does that look like? Do we see dramatically you know, larger increases in the kinds of, of human value interactions that can happen in okay. a globalized society. Right. So I think that's the, that's the bigger right. So it's, point. It's, you're, you're sort of saying it's, it's like we have AOL right now and we need the internet. But let, let's move on to the next question. We want to keep these sure. pretty quick. All right. Next question is from Josh uh, at Sir underscore Schwartz. Uh, what makes one cryptocurrency more or less valuable than another? You know, there's the speculative piece of this. So clearly, if speculators think something is is more interesting, that may drive the value higher. That isn't obviously a very satisfying answer to people, but that is actually very much the case in some of these situations right now. It's sort of where where is speculator activity. I think underlying this, though, and more fundamental is what utility value does the cryptocurrency provide? So, you know, Bitcoin, for example, it provides this very, very, very secure system with a finite number of slots in it. That's the sort of finite number of coins, so to speak. And so it's perceived as really valuable because it's so secure and it's got a finite number of units and that is part of the perceived value. Something like Ethereum has grown really dramatically in value in part because its utility is much broader. It doesn't have a finite supply. In fact, it has a a, a, a philosophy of of essentially diluting 1% a year forever. And, All right. Can you, uh, can you explain Ethereum? Because we have another question right after from Hadri Halim. Is Ethereum yeah. a type of blockchain? Again, be super brief for people here because we've got yeah, a lot of questions. Sure. So, you know, Ethereum builds on some of the ideas of Bitcoin, but um, the, the idea is a much bigger idea. And Ethereum, you really can think of as the world's first global computer that no one controls. So it is essentially a global computer like an Amazon Web Services, but that is, you know, Amazon Web Services is centralized. Ethereum is a global computer where I can write a piece of code and deploy it, and it can run over this network, and it can run in a highly secure way, in a tamper-proof way, and the data is entirely tamper-proof and secure. So it is a global computer um, that no one controls, a decentralized virtual machine. And so for a lot of different applications that is incredibly valuable. And that is why it has seen such a surge in interest is because its use cases are really conceptually as broad as the use cases of a computer. So it's a, think of it as like, you know, it's a, it's a global computer that no one controls. And um, just like, you know, in some ways the web is this global information network. Uh, people originally thought of it as like this, this global database of information and content that no one controls. It's obviously quite different, but similar, but as an environment to run software code, 
So that's okay. a little bit about right. what Ethereum is. Okay. All right. Next, Next question. question is from Kevin Swint, K Swint on Twitter. Since Bitcoin transactions don't scale and cost slash transactions are, I have, I think this is around $4, under $4. How does this ever work as a medium of exchange? Yeah. So the scaling issue is a, is a big one. And there are lots of different technical ways to scale Bitcoin and they're being worked on. And I'm not too concerned about that specifically. I think what what underlies that, though, is a is a bigger philosophical debate, if you will, about is Bitcoin for, you know, small transactions, that cup of coffee, you know, that you pay, you buy at the coffee shop, or is Bitcoin for bigger batch transactions, like the transactions that happen between banks where they're moving bigger chunks of money? And one philosophy says, you know, we should we should keep the core Bitcoin as as really um, for those big kind of batch transactions. And um, and it's OK if they cost four dollars um, to do that, because you're talking about moving much, much larger amounts of money through that. And it's the value of a tamper proof, secure ledger that you're paying to use. And then there are innovations. There's something called the Lightning Network. Or, or a, a broader concept, which is called payment channels, which essentially lets you create a kind of um, another adjacent layer uh, to Bitcoin where you can move things around using Bitcoin, but instantly uh, and with, m- with virtually no fees. And so there are ways to sort of scale where you maintain the sort of security and integrity of the underlying system, but it costs you a little bit more. But then you have these other ways to to make things really fast. So there's lots of ways to do it. Short answer is you can can have your cake and eat it too. All right. Okay, next question from Anshul Kapoor. Is Bitcoin really a safe haven? Why is Bitcoin worth more than gold when it is not physical? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it has to do with the, you know, understanding what money actually is. Money, you know, gold was... People say it has intrinsic value. Well, it has intrinsic value because it can be used in, in industrial applications. It can be used in, as a metal. And so there's value as a metal. Um, but it's, it's obviously valued because when it emerged, it was a way you could divide it. Uh, so it was something you could have different units of. It was v- measurable. And it was, it was not easy to forge, and it's very, very hard to forge. And so it was something that you couldn't counterproof. And it was also had a, it had a known or scarce supply. So scarcity, the ability to kind of use it as a, a mechanism to measure things, and, but also that the chemical properties that made it kind of unforgeable, all those things made it attractive as money. It's also pretty. And, and, it's, and it's global. It's, it's what's called a bearer instrument. If you have it, you have it. If you possess it. No one else has it. It's not subject. It's not an IOU that's subject to right. the whims right. of of a government, um, right. like theoretically. Jewels. Jewels um, are... Yeah. So, so the, those things all make it really attractive. Well, it turns out that you know Bitcoin has all those attributes and more. It has that measurability. It can't be counterproofed. There's a fixed or finite supply. You know, it, it has all those, and it can be transmitted intergalactically instantly. Which is really much better than gold. Right. <laughs> no, okay, we're going to stop there. Next All right, next question. Uh, this is definitely the currency choice of Elon Musk on Mars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is a good segue, I guess. Next question is from Gullible Reporter on Twitter. Do people pay taxes on their cryptocurrency? If so, how? So the IRS issued guidance a while ago, at least a couple of years ago, which said if you buy Bitcoin, you are buying property 
just like if you bought a stock uh, or if you bought, you know, another type of property. But yeah, essentially, you're buying yeah. property. It is an asset. That's how the IRS classifies it. They don't classify it as a currency. They classify it as an asset. If you then sell it and the asset has gained in value, you're looking at being subject to capital gains tax or income tax, um, depending on the rules of your government. So in the United States, yes, you have to pay taxes. Now, the guidance from the IRS also basically said, well, geez, if I'm you know using this as a medium of exchange and I bought some and I immediately sold it and I didn't even know I did that, but it was how I paid for my cup of coffee, they don't care about that. They don't care about small transactions. They care about people who are who are using it as an investment and investing in it that way. And it is treated that way uh, and taxed that way. Yeah, it and should be. if you haven't reported, you should really do that. Yeah. So this next question is similar from the middle. Yes, I have a question. Can you tell me why I didn't buy Bitcoin at 250? I thought it was trading too low. Thanks. I don't know why they didn't buy Bitcoin. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, did you just, buy a Bitcoin at some point? I have Bitcoin. I have some Bitcoin. I just, I forgot where it is. I know. I, I, I actually bought it <laughs> yeah. at a very low amount. What's it at right now, Jeremy? It's uh, like roughly $2,500. Oh, and I made a lot of money. I bought it like real cheap. I bought like three Bitcoins. So I made yeah, great. enough to buy a car, I guess. I don't know, or whatever. Or I have like 10. I forget. I have them somewhere, but I literally don't know where. I don't forget. Maybe it's at the about, Circle. Who knows where that? Where would I have yeah. put them, Jeremy, back then? Yeah, maybe Circle, maybe, maybe. Coinbase, something like no, that. I don't know. Somewhere. They're somewhere. somewhere. But even it's if like, one of the, let's say one of those services becomes obsolete, not that your service is going to become obsolete, but we don't know, right? right. Um, then because of this ledger that exists, this like unmutable permanent mm-hmm. ledger, like care would still be able to find that, right? Somewhere? Well, yes and no. Uh, um, yeah. If you're trusting a third party to keep what are called the private keys. So if you're if you're entrusting that third party to keep I the private I keys. I think I did. I forget. You, yeah, you did. I'm sure. Because that's the same thing to do, right? Not, you know, right. We all don't want to have private keys stuffed under our mattress, yes, so I to speak. Will. That's where my Bitcoin <laughs> is, you know, stuffed under my most mattress. Most of us are, are really afraid from, about that marijuana from the 80s. I've got a lot of things <laughs> in my mattress I forgot about. There's some coins somewhere, <laughs> some foreign currency. I don't know. Don't come to my house, all you robbers, to get my Bitcoin. Um, anyway, it's just okay. Lauren, why don't you ask the very last question? Okay, the very anyway, last I've question is from someone named Walt Mossberg. Yeah, it's who I heard yeah. retired recently, but he keeps finding his way into our podcast and we mm-hmm. welcome it should people put their retirement savings in blockchain currencies asking mm. for a friend should Walt Mossberg put his yeah. risk you know it's really Lose interesting because it I I came to all things D many years ago and code I don't know when you changed the name I forget but I think it was it was yeah it was still all things D and then Vox credit and it was actually I was doing circle then and it was early days and you know when we talk to people about this uh, and what we're doing, you know, they didn't they didn't want to sit at the same table because they thought maybe we were doing something illegal. And mm-hmm. like, drugs. I thought drugs immediately, Jeremy. Wow. That's you what know. I thought. Um, you know, fast forward to to this last time and Sean and I, my co-founder, it was really notable at your event this last year because, you know, like like Lauren said, like there was this packed discussion we had and so on. But the conversations we had around the, you know, the the lunch table, so to speak, were really, really different. And the, the questions were really that. A lot of people were saying, you know, do I, should I be exposed to this asset? And I think that is becoming certainly more mainstream. And if you look at the huge growth in this category and the capitalization at $100 billion, it's overwhelmingly being driven by retail investors. It's being driven by, you know, private wealth managers and family offices and other individuals that are saying, I want to have some exposure to this for optionality, like, hey, if this is as big as the internet or as big as the web or whatever, I, want, I can buy shares in it, quote unquote, now, 
that would be a smart thing to do. And so, look, everyone's situation is different. Everyone's personal financial situation is different. I think what I picked up from it, talking to some you know folks that were pretty savvy, pretty savvy in managing, say, the wealth of people in Silicon Valley, was, hey, everybody should have at least you know 50 basis points of their investment assets exposed to to crypto assets. That would be a, a, oh, a, a, a sane, smart thing assets. to do. Um, hmm. You know, could you could you go bigger than that? Sure. Could you go smaller than that? Sure. It all depends on a person's situation. But you know, sort of the half a point exposure. The challenge is that there aren't super convenient ways to do that yet. Like people generally don't want to go and get on an exchange and buy and sell and worry about how do you custody and hold this and so on. And there aren't, there isn't a way for you to just call up your investment advisor, whether, you know, whoever that is, wherever that is, and say, hey, I, I want to have $10,000 of exposure to this and I don't want to worry about it. That's not, we're not quite there. And so a lot of people are, are waiting for that. I think that's on the horizon, but the, you know, the, the, there are a lot of very savvy people who are getting involved in these assets, especially as they go from just the digital currencies yeah. themselves Definitely to banks, ICOs and others. these new types of tokens that really represent next generation protocols on the internet you're investing in. Yeah, I think I just had bankers ask me if I wanted to like, I was like, oh, I, I know, I'm too old. <laughs> I've decided I'm too old. <laughs> just like, get me a pile of gold and I'll carry it around in my yeah. backpack. That's what I'll do. Hand it out, like take put a chunk off mattress. Ship it to Mars. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. currency is so stupid if you really think about it. There should be a global yes. currency. Which is, is it really is the dumbest is. thing ever. We although, will look back. We will although look back. Although people who don't like world governments, that we can you imagine these paper tokens? The anti-government people with crypto they're just like, what a world currency! Like, yeah. You know, like, I, just wait yeah. until people are paying for our stories, you, like on the blockchain. On the blockchain. Right. Just, yeah. yeah. Every time you file a story, Kara, you have to accept some form of. Well, there is actually a lot of excitement about about the that, you know, this yeah, whole immutability thing, right? Fake things. news. Where's information? How do you prove a fact? And yeah. and blockchains actually become a way. To, if you can get a content system on top of it, or a Twitter-like system on top of it, you, you can you can Ooh, actually mathematically fake. prove like was this real or not. Uh, oh. So the, there's some some implications that are starting to bleed into content and digital rights and facts and how do you represent a fact in the world and know that it is in fact true and, and everyone agrees to that. Well, now if we could only solve for human stupidity, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Next case, episode of Too Embarrassed. Yes, on that, we try on Too Embarrassed, but it's a, it's a losing game. All right, this has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Absolutely. Yes, My thank pleasure. you for joining us and trying to explain blockchain, blockchain. to those of us uh, idiot, who may idiot. not have known too much about it. Speaking of um, and if you all enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show and you can go to iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask and leave us a review if you yes. feel so inclined. Yes, please do. But seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. And if you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can also subscribe to our show on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or you can just go to recode.net slash podcasts and listen to every episode there. Yes, and while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts, which are growing like wildfire, like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. With the one and only Peter Kafka. Only one. The Verge also has Thank a God. flagship podcast, The Verge Cast, which you may have heard of, hosted by Neil I. Patel. Yeah. And don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed or email them to Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. Thank you for listening. And thanks also to Digital Media, the company 
company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you have been too embarrassed to ask. So tune in then. <laughs>